Our first, first Bible reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 1, reading verses 14 to 20. Mark 1, 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And the second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 29 to 31. 1 Corinthians 7 29. This is what I mean brothers and sisters, the time is limited. So from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they didn't own anything, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. Well, it's great to be back here amongst it all with you. Three weeks of vacation. Any of you will have vacation over the last couple of weeks since Christmas? No, Kathy? Oh, that's a shame. You need to get out more. Anybody else? Yeah, kind of. Uh, excellent. Well, I hope you had a great time. Because when most people go to on vacation to rest and relax, well, I, however, toss and turn. Can't sleep at night. This happened over my recent holiday because my mind and my spirit was striving to integrate some ideas that have long left me perplexed. Thankfully, I came to some insights at 4 o'clock in the morning that I want to share with you all now and over this year. One insight I had was that the majority of evangelical Protestant Christians start their faith in Genesis 3. Read it. Genesis 3, in the garden, fall. Some Christians start their faith and their theology in Genesis chapter 3. They focus on the fall, on the sinfulness of humankind and our need for repentance. But I have to admit, this never sat very well with me. Not the fall, not that stuff, but starting our faith there. So I came to a conclusion that perhaps a better place to start was with Genesis 1 and 2, focusing on the abundance of creation. Because all God created is good, and after the fall, we would do well to be reconciled to him, to accept his generous and gracious gift of forgiveness, which brings about the recreation in advance of the renewal of God's creation. 
So Genesis 1 or Genesis 1 to 2, but yet still tossing and turning. I came to realize that I do not really find my theological starting point either in Genesis 1 to 2 or even Genesis chapter 3, even though both of those passages are very important indeed. When I consider, though, what I know about God and the human condition, in actual fact, I am more fundamentally inclined towards Genesis 12, where we read, The Lord said to Abram. Now, if you know the passage, you'll know that the Lord said to Abram and gave him instructions to leave his family and to go on a journey to a promised land where God would bless him and his wife and give him descendants, even though he was very advanced in age, and those descendants would become numerous and they would bless all of the nations. Genesis 12 describes the first historical encounter with our Creator. The Lord said to Abram. Now, otherwise known as Yahweh, the Lord spoke to Abram. This is the first time in the scriptures that we find that a human person had a direct encounter with God. Now, Abram was already a religious person. In the household of his father, they were worshippers of pagan idols. So they had some kind of idea that there might be a God out there and that we would do well to worship and obey that God, and this is how we'll figure it out. But then God spoke to Abram, revealed himself. It's a whole new way forward in the relationship between God and humanity. The Lord appeared to Abram, gave him instructions, and made him a promise. Abraham believed and obeyed and was ultimately called a friend of God. Now, this encounter sounds very much like Jesus giving the Great Commission to the apostles in Matthew chapter 28. It also sounds very much like the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where the Lord revealed himself and people came to a new insight, a true insight, and found a way to be related to our Creator. Indeed, our Gospel reading from the Gospel of Mark describes Simon, Andrew, James, and John's first encounter with Jesus. He gave them instructions, he made a promise to them, and they became his disciples. So for to me, to be a Genesis 12 Christian is to recognize the singular importance of conversion and discipleship. On this, Emeritus Professor Michael Knight A.M., who I happen to know personally, really great guy from Sutherland, he wrote, because he's a big fancy geologist, show off, but anyway, very importantly, he wrote, the story of Abram begins a new spiritual dimension of humanity. This was completed some 2,000 years ago when God revealed himself through Jesus Christ being born into our world fully human and fully God. See, we no longer have to make up our understanding of how the world works. We don't have to imagine what God is like because God has come down and revealed himself to us personally and directly. Abraham had an encounter with the Almighty God and the apostles had an encounter with the risen Christ, Jesus. That is either historical fact or it is fiction. If it happened then we can trust everything else that God has revealed and that is recorded in the Bible. If it did not happen, 
then the Bible's message is no better than any other world religion, being a good idea one can take or leave. In fact, Christianity is the only world religion that relies on historical accountability and reliable testimony. It is not merely interesting speculation about the nature of the world and morality. It is something altogether different. Beginning with Abraham, the Bible contains the testimony of a wide variety of encounters with the living God by a wide variety of people. The Bible then challenges us to take seriously its claim that the world in its current form is passing away. The only protection from that is to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I am committing to return to our first principles and to focus on discipleship. To be a vibrant and valid Christian church, we need to have a clear and accessible pathway for helping everyone within our spheres of influence to move from knowing little or nothing about our Creator to then maturing in faith and lifestyle. We need discipleship for everyone. Now, I've long been convinced that choosing to become a disciple of Jesus was the most important decision I ever made. Sorry, honey. It is the most important decision anyone can make. Problem is how to convince you of this. See, on too many occasions, I have tried to convince someone to place their faith in Jesus only to have them tell me their life is good. So why would they need to follow Jesus? And that's a fair question and challenge. I dare say part of the problem is that Genesis 3 Christians tend to focus and to describe the problem of sin. And they describe our need of salvation, which is true and which we need. However, they use biblical language, what we might call Christianese, which might as well be a foreign language because no one outside of the church understands why they have a problem. So how can Jesus be the solution? Which is why you will have noticed over the past three years that I have chosen to use the term a friend of Jesus rather than disciple or even discipleship. Because that term is much more uh, easy to understand. We get that idea. It makes sense to everyone. And there is biblical precedent for using this term. It is the highest compliment found in the Bible. I've also chosen to describe the benefits of being reconciled to our Creator because that we can live a free, full, and forever life was promised by Jesus to his friends is far more compelling than telling someone he or she is a sinner and then asking if they know where they will end up when they die, which is important to understand. But that's not going to draw a whole lot of people in, is it? The friends of Jesus, we know there is a problem that we all suffer that we are estranged from our Creator. But how do we describe that problem in a way others will understand? This question has plagued me for many years. And after losing much sleep over my recent vacation, I came up with an easy-to-understand definition of discipleship that I am going to use as the foundation for our discipleship pathway. And that is that the friends of Jesus place our faith in Him live a Christian lifestyle, and build each other up to maturity. Now, if our church is going to be a faithful Genesis 12 church, strategically focusing on conversion and discipleship, then we need to fully understand the first steps of this pathway. 
So let me unpack it for you in this way. Friends of Jesus place our faith in him because through an encounter with the living God, we have discovered God's story makes sense of our story. This occurs when we read the Bible, pray, and share. Now someone's now thinking to themselves, term faith sounds an awful lot like Christianese. And that's a fair statement, but it is completely inaccurate. While people in our day like to pretend we live by reason and not by faith, in this we deceive ourselves. A simple demonstration will prove the point. Now I want all of you to reach into your pockets, pull out your wallet or your purse, and find your driver's license, if you have one. If you don't, that's okay. Find some other piece of identification. Go on. Hurry up. You're biting into my preaching time. You haven't got Dennis. I hope you're not driving. Some of you have it on your phone, but you all have one, right? We all have identification. Your official identification, it documents your date of birth, your place of birth, who your parents are, and depending on whether it's a Medicare that you're holding up, Medicare card you're holding up, it may even tell you who your brothers and sisters are. Now, this information was provided to the government by your parents or others who completed a statutory declaration that this information is true. Now, you accept this information is true. You are certain of these details of your identity. But why? You were not really aware of anything at the time, were you? So you cannot even confirm that you were present. You accept on the basis of your parents' reliable testimony that these fundamental details about yourself are true, right? You accept that this is true, even though you weren't there or you weren't conscious at the time. You are relying on testimony. You are relying on faith. Now, relying on testimony is, of course, a reasonable and respectable way of having knowledge. No one would challenge your identity as Dennis, Carrie, or whoever you are. Right? You accept it as true. It is an acceptable way to have knowledge. Now, we can draw a parallel from this to what we read in the New Testament of the Bible. See, the Gospels are accounts from people who claim to either have been eyewitnesses or who have taken their accounts from people who were directly involved with Jesus. We are justified in accepting their testimony as reliable because the tools of the science of history demonstrate this information is even more reliable than anything else we know about history. Eyewitnesses stated in their writings they had seen Jesus and the Gospels record how it happened. And this is perfectly respectable knowledge of the same quality as many other things we know with certainty. Although we know those things by relying on testimony. So at one level then, to place one's faith in Jesus is to accept what is written about him is true and to accept that he is who he said he is. Accepting this, we then take his claims and his instructions seriously. The next logical question then becomes, so why have the friends of Jesus accepted this as true? Well, while the testimonies about Jesus are reasonable and reliable, we all want more. Let's be honest. The friends of Jesus place our faith in him because we encounter the living God. 
our own experience is more convincing than what we can reason with our intellect or what someone else can convince us of. What they convince us of is respectable, but to have a direct experience, well, that's better. A supernatural, blinding flash of light type encounter does and has happened to some people. But what can everyone else expect from, or how can we know we have encountered the living God? Well, that also is a fair and reasonable question, but it's a little hard to explain because having an encounter with the living God is an experience that's hard to describe. I recently listened to the testimony of Dr. Guillaume Bignon, a French philosopher and theologian whose story of conversion to Christianity was featured on episode 120 of the Undeceptions podcast. Did anyone listen to the episode as I recommended? Excellent. Well done, you. Because it's so good. The stories of conversion on that episode were brilliant. Now, Guillaume described his experience, and he referred to it as being as having his conscience reactivated. He said this, I was expecting some sort of an open heaven with a voice coming down and a welcome sun. The way I explain it is that God did something that was much less theatrical, but much more brutal in the end. It is that he reactivated my conscience. And at the same time, I had been investigating Christianity and had been reflecting on those experiences, I had also come to commit some really immoral actions that basically involved cheating on that girlfriend with various aggravating circumstances. It was so, so ugly that I had completely suppressed it, and I kind of turned around and lived as if it never happened and shoved it in. And what happened is that God took this and he shoved it in my face, and my conscience was reactivated. I was just confronted with the fact that I had done those things, and this is all I could think about. I was crippled with guilt, like literally crippling guilt. I was in pain, and deep pain, at having done this. Now, let's be honest. That doesn't sound like a very pleasant experience at all, does it? But through the pain, Guillaume discovered freedom and joy, and love. He took what he had done wrong seriously enough because God reactivated his conscience and that led him to a better way of being in the world. He took the claims and instructions of Christ so seriously that he did not kiss his wife until they committed to each other at the altar of their marriage. The one who had once cheated on his girlfriend now would not kiss his fiancée until the minister said, you may now kiss your bride. That's how seriously he took the claims of Christ. Now, you need to go that far? But anyway, that's change that it wrought in his life. Guillaume's description of having his conscience reactivated fits with C.S. Lewis's description of how our conscience is an indicator of our relationship or not with the Holy Spirit. On this he wrote, These then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. 
See, Lewis had an incredible ability to clearly articulate key issues and then explain them in a very straightforward, easy-to-understand way. And what he did in his BBC lectures and in his book, Mere Christianity, was simple. He explained, one, that we all have a real sense of right and wrong that we appeal to. But then we make excuses for when we don't keep it ourselves. Two, that this moral law can't just be another one of our instincts. And three, it can't be just a product of education particular to any given society. See, Lewis believed, as I do, that our conscience is that part of ourselves that is either in tune with the Holy Spirit or out of tune. And we know when we're out of tune. We just may not understand what we're out of tune with. Spirit either provides energy for love and joy and peace, etc., or we reject the Spirit in favor of finding light, life, and love somewhere else but we ultimately find only darkness and death and disconnection. The great reformer and founder of Methodism, John Wesley, similarly described an encounter with the living God that he had, which became a pivotal moment in his life that is now considered the start of the Methodist movement. In his journal dated the 24th of May, 1738, after a meeting in Aldersgate Street, London, Wesley wrote, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change with God, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, I don't know how much you know about John Wesley, but by this point, he was already an Anglican minister. Already a Christian, he believed in his head the truth. But now, the Holy Spirit brought him to encounter the living God. And that is what made all the difference. Your conscience reverberates with an energy and an instinct that seems to come from beyond yourselves. That is because light, life, and love have now reactivated your conscience and you have encountered the living God, my friend. Now you're hopefully now chomping at the bit, wondering, how can I have this experience? Well, it is not something that you can control, for God will meet you in the time and place and method only He knows is right for you. There are some basic things you can and should do to get started. I will expand on these in more detail in the future, but for now there are three things that you can do to prepare yourself for an encounter with the living God. They are, read the Bible, pray, and share. Easy. How easy is that? Friends of Jesus know and understand that God has revealed himself in and through the words and stories and teachings of the Bible, so read it. Plain and simple. If you're not yet reading the Bible and don't know where to start, can I encourage you to start with the Revised Common Lectionary. Now, it's a fancy term, but it's simply a series of weekly and daily readings from the Psalms, the Old Testament, the New Testament letters, and the Gospels. 
The readings assigned to each day are not onerous to complete. You can read them all in about five minutes tops. Or you can go more slowly, which I highly encourage, take ten. From now on, our Sunday sermons will be based on the readings signed on Sundays. The daily readings support Sunday readings. So you'll get more out of our preaching by following along on the lecture. In fact, connect groups perhaps even to take those readings and reflect on them together. We are going to include each week's readings in the weekly bulletin, but you can also find them on the web anywhere. The revised common lecture. That's how we can read the Bible. Now, there are other ways, of course, but if you haven't, are not doing it yet, that is a great place to start. Now, the friends of Jesus know and understand that God is a real being, a person of quality different from humankind, but still someone that you can relate to and interact with. Relationships are built on communication, after all. So where God speaks with us through the words of the Bible, prayer is how we communicate with God. When Guillaume began to pray, he described his experience this way. There's one experiment I can run as a scientist. I could pray and see what happens. If there's a God, it might be interested, might be listening. So I started to pray as an unbeliever, as a hostile unbeliever. Let me disprove and say, well, okay, God, if you are there, I don't think there is anybody, but if there's a God out there, why don't you go ahead and reveal yourself to me? Reading the New Testament, starting with some of the Gospels, reading about this person, Jesus, tasted very differently. See, he started as a hostile unbeliever, began to read the Scriptures, and then started to discover something new. Guillaume's hostile prayer affected his Bible reading, but it led to an experience with the living God that he is now sharing with you and I and others around the world. Now, if you are not yet praying regularly and don't know where to start, then let me encourage you to start with praying the Lord's Prayer. Clearly, Jesus knows what is best for us, and this is the prayer he gave to his disciples. So there is a good chance that is a good prayer for the friends of Jesus too. The Lord's Prayer, even beyond just its simple words, provides a model for prayer that we're going to explore much more in the future. But begin now by praying its words so that you will learn its structure. Finally, friends of Jesus, know and understand how important it is to share our faith. Now by this, I do not mean evangelism per se. That comes later in the faith journey. I mean sharing our life together, our joys and our sorrows, our questions and our wisdom. See, last night, sorry, last night, night before last, my family enjoyed the company of some friends, some good friends, even better friends now. We talked about our favorite holiday spots. We talked about our favorite coffee machines, on whether we like smart homes or not. We talked about our favorite card games, our joys and our struggles with our work, we talked about the painting and music of Reg Mombasa. We talked about our favorite whiskeys, among other favorite things. And we shared the joys and struggles of our faith. It was so natural because we were being real and we were being genuine with each other. Your family and your friends, even new acquaintances you meet on public transport, 
are happy to share with you their joys and their sorrows, their questions and their wisdom, and they're happy to hear yours. So share your life and share your faith as if it is the most natural thing in the world, because it is. You don't need me to train you in this. Just be real. Talk about what's going on in your life and the fact that you have learned these things about God and the difference he makes to you. Let me give you another example closer to home. Now, our church administrator, Kim, posted the key verse of this sermon as the header image of our weekly bulletin. And our prayer coordinator, Pam, there she is, based her weekly encouragement in the, in the bulletin based on Kim's sermon from last week on the topic of being an influencer. Now, these were both simple and natural ways to incorporate their faith into our community. No one told them to do this, although we think it's a really good idea, so we're going to do it from now on. But they just very naturally said, here, hey, this is something good. I want to share this with the community. Here's an experience we're having together, so let's pop that up. Let's highlight that. That is what it is to share our faith. And if we can't do it here, we're certainly not going to be able to do it out there. Be real with each other. We don't have to convert the people around us to share our joys and our sorrows, our questions and our wisdom. But doing so just might encourage them to place their own faith in Jesus, even as sharing it in such a way will bolster yours. So reading the Bible, praying, and sharing are the most basic things the friends of Jesus prepare themselves to encounter the living God. Through these simple actions, we discover that God's story makes sense of our story. You see, like all men and women, boys and girls, we strive each day to find meaning and purpose, to find light and life and love, to make sense of each day and what's happening to us. Sadly, our fallen world leads us into darkness and death and disconnection. Or we walk into that ourselves as we try to find our own way. God reveals to us through our reading the Bible, through praying and through sharing, puts all the darkness, death, and disconnection into perspective. It explains what is going on and how to avoid it, how to find the free, full, and forever life Jesus promised to his friends. C.S. Lewis described his own faith this way. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because, but because by it, I see everything else. That is what it means to be a friend of Jesus. That what we know about Jesus through our reading of the Bible, through our prayer, and through our sharing, puts everything else into perspective. We understand the problem of evil because the Bible tells us where it came from and where it's going. We understand what is going on over there and over there and in here because Christ has described it for us. We see the world by the light of the Holy Spirit. And so if you yearn as I do for light and life and love, then let me encourage you to become a friend of Jesus. Place your faith in him because this world in its current form is passing away. Through an encounter with the living God, you too will discover God's story makes sense of your story. And this occurs when we read the Bible, when we pray, and when we share. So respond to the call of Jesus and become his disciple. Well, here at Norellan, 
we're going to focus our creative energy on helping us all to place our faith in Him, to live a Christian lifestyle, and to build each other up to maturity, where sometimes we succeed, but mostly we long. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have not left us in the chaos and violence and darkness and despair that is this world, but instead you have shone your light and we have seen it. We have seen it, we have felt its warmth, and we will respond. We will respond with obedience and we will respond with love, peace, and joy. Move in our hearts. Transform us. Help us to grow and to do the things that we know will help us to grow. Help us to find the time to read the Bible. Not find the time, to make the time to read the Bible. Find ways to pray that are going to be meaningful to us and help us, Lord, to be open and honest, to share our joys, our struggles, our wisdom, and the lessons that we are learning sometimes very painfully. Because we know that as we turn ourselves over to your spirit, then you will guide us through those struggles and you will bring us out on the other side. We look forward to that day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.